That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote intuitive fasting, the inflammation spectrum, ketotarian. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, becoming a patient, we actually have brand new telehealth patient options now open and there's lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, I have a brand new book that's for pre-order right now. It's my fourth book. It's called Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fuel Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. So it's really talking about this interconnectedness between mental health and physical health and how, in fact, mental health is physical health and talking about the research around shame and chronic stress and trauma and intergenerational trauma and how those mental, emotional, spiritual things impacts our physical body, how it can impact from a cellular level all the way to dysregulation of our nervous system, creating hypervigilance, impacting our endocrine system, our hormones, impacting inflammation levels, our gut health, and then conversely, how underlying gut problems and, and other physiological things, nutrient deficiencies, chronic infections like mold toxicity or chronic Lyme disease and things like histamine intolerance, how those physiological things impacts our mental health, impacts things like anxiety and depression and brain fog and fatigue. So it's called gut feelings, the gut and feelings, right? The physiological and the psychological. So anyways, it's gut feelings is for pre-order right now. And we're giving away tons of free stuff when you pre-order the book. So head on over to drwillcool.com and the Gut Feelings page to learn all about the pre-order campaign for Gut Feelings. And we're also giving away free signed books when you rate and review The Art of Being Well on Apple Podcasts. So every month, no matter when you listen to this episode, my team and I will be randomly picking winners every single month. You can do it two different ways. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast Review itself, or you can take a screenshot of the Apple Podcast Review, 
and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every month I'll be going through the messages with my team on Instagram, as well as the Apple podcast review themselves and randomly picking winners. So good luck. All right, let's get to today's guest. His name is Dr. Robert Waldinger. Dr. Waldinger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger received his AB from Harvard College and his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. He is a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and he directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He is also a Zen master and teaches meditation in New England and around the world. He is the co-author of the brilliant new book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Stay tuned through the entire conversation because at the end of my conversation with Dr. Waldinger, I'll be answering another one of your burning health questions and ask me anything. Let's get to it. This is Dr. Robert Waldinger's Art of Being Well. Bob, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. This is going to be great. We're going to learn so much about just living a long, healthy life and what's the science show about living a long, healthy life and the science around happiness. Let's get right into it. This study, this longest scientific study on happiness, it, tell us about it. Like, and, and what was the genesis behind the book and and bringing out the time that it's out right now. Sure. So this is the longest study of adult life that's ever been done, that it started in 1938 with teenagers and followed them through their whole lives. A few are still alive. A few of our 724 original people, they're now in their late 90s or early 100s. Wow. And we've also studied all their kids now who are mostly baby boomers. So altogether over 2,000 people. Wow, that is amazing. So what's the study show? I mean, what's this essential ingredient that we need to be knowing to, to live a good life? <laughs> well, one ingredient you have been devoting your podcast to, which is taking care of your physical health. And we found that that was super important in who stayed healthy and who lived long lives. But the ingredient that surprised us was the finding that the people who were more connected to other people stayed healthiest and lived longest. The people who had the best relationships with other people were the ones who were happiest and healthiest. And it was the health part that surprised us. Amazing. So the, the healthier our relationships are, the, lo- the, the studies show the longer, healthier life that we live. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Okay. So now my, I'm an Enneagram 5 researcher and I overthink things sometimes. Like, What constitutes a good relationship? How do I know? Okay. I'm on the positive side here as far as my relationships go. Relationships give us all kinds of different things. So there is no single thing, but Probably all of us need one particular kind of relationship, which is the kind where somebody really has your back. So I'll give you, I'll give you an instance from our research. At one point, we asked people, list all the people in your life who you could call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared. And some of our people couldn't, 
couldn't list anyone. And some listed quite a number of people. And we think that all of us need one, at least one of those relationships in our life. But then all kinds of relationships are good for us. You know, work relationships, family relationships, friendships to be sure, but also even what we think of as casual relationships, like the the cashier who checks you out every week at the grocery store or the barista who makes your coffee for you every morning. Like when you exchange a few pleasant words, that gives us a little hit of well-being. Mm -hmm. So all of those relationships contribute to our sense of well-being. Okay. So it doesn't seem like as far as the data is concerned, we don't have to have an a higher amount of really good quality relationships. You're saying even just one matters, but is it sort of, you mentioned this sort of cumulative effect of the all, no matter how close the relationship is, the health of them. It is, it's a cumulative effect and it also depends on who you are. So all of us are kind of somewhere on a spectrum from shy, introverted to extroverted. And there's nothing normal or abnormal about either end of the spectrum. It's just, that's how we are, right? Yeah. So some of us need lots of people in our lives, like we're party animals and we get our energy from other people. Mm -hmm. Some of us find a lot of people exhausting mm -hmm. and stressful. And so those people might just need one or two good relationships in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's for each of us to determine. Got it. So I would be, and I love people. My my job is to talking to people, my patients online, telehealth, but I would be on more on the introverted side of the spectrum where I yeah. I need to recharge after a long day. Yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are you more introverted or extroverted, Bob? I've got both in me. Like in some ways, like when I walk into a party, I'm like really shy. Yeah. But I really like, I get a kick out of talking with you. Like I find this energizing, yeah. right? Yes. So, so I have both aspects to me. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm kind of like one-on-one. -on -one, I'm great. Small, intimate groups of people, but like big groups of people. But, and I'm fine with speaking in front of a crowd. It's fun, funny, but that mid-sized group where it's like a party <laughs> is draining to me. I want to hide in the corner somewhere, hide in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I saw a meme once. It said that bathrooms at parties are like charging stations for introverts. <laughs> 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 I love that. So, so I'm a, I'm a Zen practitioner. Yes. And, and one of the things we often say is that Zen retreats are parties for introverts. <laughs> so we just sit in silence most of the time. I love it. Maintaining muscle health is critically important to longevity and enduring good health. Postbiotics, the active nutrients your body makes during digestion are an emerging, fascinating area of science and a driver of good health. The science around urolithin A is so exciting, and it's one of the first postbiotics shown to have major health benefits and has become available finally to all of us. Urolithin A upgrades your body's cellular power grid, giving your body the energy it needs to be optimized. Clinical studies have shown that 500 milligrams of urolithin A alone significantly increases muscle strength and endurance with no other change in lifestyle. Pretty amazing, right? My go-to for urolithin A, I've been taking it for a while now, is something called MitoPure from Timeline Nutrition. If you haven't listened to the episode, I actually 
had Timeline Nutrition's chief medical officer, Dr. Anurag Singh, who is a genius, talk all about the fascinating science around longevity and mitophagy and autophagy and cellular renewal and what the science is showing around this fascinating postbiotic urolithin A. Timeline Nutrition is the Swiss-based science company. It's a global leader in urolithin A research and their products are NSF certified for sport. Timeline has MitoPure in three products designed to fit your individual needs. They have a berry powder, which is great to mix into your breakfast yogurt or daily smoothie. They have protein powder. It adds the muscle health benefits of whey protein to the bioenergetics of MitoPure and soft gels. For those days you are on the run and want something super convenient, grab and go choice. It's brilliant. Timeline is offering 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Go to timelinenutrition.com slash willcole and use code willcole to get 10% off your order. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash willcole. Timelinenutrition.com slash willcole. Use code willcole to get 10% off your first order. I recommend trying their starter pack with all three formats. You're going to love this stuff. Kelly and I'm the host of Going Mental. After struggling with these incredible highs of a booming career and then the unbelievable lows of losing my mental health, I voluntarily admitted myself to a psychiatric hospital. I ended up staying over five months learning not only how to better manage my symptoms, but also just get my life back on track. So I'm here to say that no matter where you are, you're not alone. On my show, Going Mental, I'm going to be talking to guests about their own mental health journeys, as well as talking to professionals. New episodes every Thursday, and you can find Going Mental on Dear Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. Going Mental all of the time. So let's talk about this study. You mentioned it be going on since the 1930s. Can you give people, the listeners out there that are the science nerds, like how was the study formatted? What were you sure. looking for as far as the questionnaires, et cetera? They originally were two separate studies and the studies didn't even know about each other. So they were both started at Harvard. One was started at the Harvard Student Health Service. And it was a study of sophomores, college sophomores, age 19, who were chosen by their deans as fine, upstanding young men. And it was meant to be a study of normal development from adolescence into young adulthood. So of course, if you want to study normal young adult development, you study all white men from Harvard. It's like the most politically incorrect sample you could have. Right. But that was what they started with. Uh, we've since broadened it, of course. But the other study was started at Harvard Law School. It was started by a law professor and his partner who was a social worker, they were interested in juvenile delinquency and they were particularly interested in why some kids from really difficult backgrounds managed to stay out of trouble and stay on good developmental paths. And so they chose boys, usually around middle school age, from not just the poorest families in the city of Boston in 1938, but the most troubled families. So families known to five social service agencies on, on average for domestic violence, 
parental mental illness, extreme poverty, all those kind of hardships. And then the question was, how do these kids manage to do okay in spite of being born with two strikes against them? Mm -hmm. Wow. So the, you mentioned the, the factor of relationship health and how it's associated with happiness and a longer life. What are the other factors that are strongly associated in the research with longevity? Well, those are the big ones. So taking care of your health and, mm -hmm. and relationship functioning. You know, another is really privilege. So what mm -hmm. we found was that among our inner city men, we compared our inner city men and our Harvard men, the Harvard men lived on average 10 years longer than the inner city men. Mm -hmm. But 25 of those 456 inner city guys went to college and graduated from college. Really unexpected that they could do that. Those 25 people lived just as long as their Harvard counterparts. And we don't think it was because they had college diplomas. We think it was because of all the support from family and community that you had to have just to get to college and then to mm -hmm. stay in college. And then we also think that the education was important because it, these were people probably who did more reading and therefore got the messages sooner that were coming out, particularly in the 70s and 80s, about taking care of your health, about not smoking, about exercise, about diet. And so we think that the people who got the message earlier were those college-educated people. Mm -hmm. Got it. So we're talking about education, community, physical health, relationships. Those, those are important things. So what are you, what do you say to someone that maybe doesn't have the best community and they feel like, man, I kind of isolated here. Like what are some tips that you have for someone cultivating some healthy relationships and healthy community? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, see what's around you, see what might be possible, like literally near you. Cause you, you know, what's, what's right around is there are there groups? Are there meetup groups you could go to to do things you care about? Because one of the things we find is that when people are doing something they care about, like it might be volunteering for a political campaign, it might be a gardening club, it might be a bowling league, who knows, anything, but something you love to do, that when you do that alongside other people, it's a natural place to start meeting people because you already have something in common and it's a natural way to start up conversations. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is find a place to use your time and energy to volunteer if you can. Mm -hmm. And actually one pointer that I really like was if you're lonely, volunteer to help people who are lonely. That's great. Yeah, I mean, giving of yourself and really putting yourself out there. Yeah, interesting. Almost like giving out of your need. Yeah. In some way. I heard you talk about happiness not being something you achieve. So what what is what do you mean by that exactly? Well, we often have this idea that I could do the right things. And if I do all the right things and get all the right stuff, <laughs> I could finally be happy, right? Yeah. And I could, and then I'd be in a place where I'm always happy. And that's just not the truth of anybody's life. Like nobody's happy all the time, right? We're all faced with challenges. We all have bad days and good days. 
And so it's really important not to buy into the myth that we sometimes accidentally sell each other or sell each other on purpose that, you know, if you just buy this car, you're going to be happy. Yeah. Or if you serve this pasta at family dinners, you're going to be happy. You know, not the truth of life. <laughs> it's not the truth of life at, at all, but it, it's what is sold to us so, so often. So how do we cut through that noise? And like, how do we stay focused on not being swept up in that consumerism or that FOMO inducing content you see on yeah. social media? Yeah. Well, first to notice what really does make you happy. So if you notice the FOMO-inducing content, notice what your body feels like when you're scrolling through somebody else's Instagram feed, right? You know, notice how it's depleting of your energy. Notice how it makes you feel worse. And then notice other ways you spend your time that are energizing, that make you feel more open to the world. Mm -hmm. And turn yourself toward those because mm -hmm. each of us can do that, that little test at any moment. Mm -hmm. I always talk to my patients about to practices to drop FOMO and turn it into JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. <laughs> be, yeah. okay, be okay with being in yourself, right? In, in the present exactly. moment. You write about social fitness. So how do we flex? What is social fitness and how do we, how do we start working it out? Well, social fitness is, is something we came up with and we write about in the book, and it's really meant to be an analogy to physical fitness. So, you know, if you go work out today, you don't come back home and say, ah, oh, great, I did that. I don't ever have to do that again, right? We know it's a practice. It's ongoing. What we find is that our relationships take care and they take strengthening and maintenance just like our bodies. And that in fact, many relationships that are perfectly good just wither and die from neglect. Mm -hmm. Like I used to think when I was in my 20s, I, I thought, gee, you know, I've got my friends from elementary school and my friends from college and, you know, these good friends, they're always going to be my friends. They'll take, if it's a good relationship, it will take care of itself. And that turns out not to be true. Mm -hmm. So what we're urging people to think about is the idea that taking care of your relationships can be an ongoing practice that brings you joy, that brings you well-being. I love that. So, I mean, how you mentioned about relationships and having healthy relationships, I think a lot of people have very depleting relationships. A lot of times I see patients that are, have to really hold it. Like they are the, the glue that keeps a lot of relationships together. They're the caretakers in many ways. They're the ones checking in on everybody. They're the empathic people and they feel depleted many times. And I'm not yeah. saying to be a, obviously you mentioned being a good, like volunteering and, and caring and giving of yourself and all of that stuff is great. But how do you balance that with energy depleting relationships? And how do you know what relationships are, you know, healthy for your health or, or good for your health or not? Boy, that is such an important question. And it takes a lot of discernment. So some relationships where we are the caretakers are really important to us. You know, like, you know, taking care of a toddler is joyous, but really depleting. But <laughs> yes. is it meaningful? Yeah. Is it important in your life? Yeah. Are you going to walk away from that toddler? No, of course not. <laughs> no. You know, but what about those friends who just take and take and don't really give you much back? 
um, as opposed to the friends where it's more mutual, where there's real give and take, real reciprocity. You may decide you can step away from some of those relationships where you're just giving and not receiving much in return. And really, you know, we can we can pay more attention to whether there's genuine reciprocity in our relationships and try to nourish those relationships when we can and let the other ones go mm-hmm. if it's possible. Mm-hmm. And do, should we be concerned with, I don't know, letting go is hard for us humans, many of us, right? We don't want to hurt feelings. We don't want to ruffle feathers. If it means it is a relationship that I don't want to use the word toxic, but something that's raising your stress levels or is not great for your health, right? Whatever you want to call it. How, any any advice would you would you give us to, to maybe create distance and boundaries around that relationship? Yes. Yes. So first of all, let me just say that lots of relationships have difficulties in them. In fact, that's normal, you know, to have conflicts like I want this and you want that. That's not a problem necessarily. And it mm-hmm. can create stress. Mm-hmm. But the trick there is to see if you can work through differences. And if you can, then usually the relationships get stronger. So see, don't just walk away from any relationship that has some difficulty. See if there are ways that you two can work things out. Because if you can, then you've got a really good future ahead of you. Of Because difficulties are going to come up in any relationship of, of any depth. And that's okay if you can work them out. But then what you're talking about, Will, is this, you know, this problem of toxic relationships. So mm-hmm. at the extreme, physically abusive relationships, mm-hmm. boy, if at all possible, distance yourself from those relationships, set strict boundaries, emotionally abusive relationships. You can try to set limits by saying, I will not allow you to talk to me that way. But if that doesn't work and someone continues to be abusive, that's a relationship to distance yourself from. Mm-hmm. One of the things we do find is that, and some other research, not just ours, finds that people who are in really toxic relationships, emotionally abusive relationships, are highly stressed and their health breaks down sooner. Mm-hmm. So it's important if you, if you see that a work, working on a relationship does not help, to try to step away when you can. Mm-hmm. Very well said. I always, you know, and I'm I, I'm happy that this information is out here around gaslighting, and that term is used a lot. And I, I think our the the pop culture zeitgeist at the moment, and there's r- obviously massive problems I think throughout history for people, especially women, but really everybody. And I talk about medical gaslighting a lot for people that are struggling with autoimmune issues, and they're made to feel like they're crazy or like they're it's all in their head. It's a massive issue. But right. in relationships, I find sometimes, it, especially on social media, that that word medical, uh, that word gaslighting is thrown around so much. And it's like when anyone tells us something we don't want to hear and have difficult conversations, we say it's a gas, it's a gaslighting. So how, <laughs> do you find that as well? I mean, being in this space for, for as long as you have been, how do we differentiate between true gaslighting and just difficult conversations sometimes and differing opinions? Oh boy, that's so important. So gaslighting comes from that movie Gaslight, right? Where this man deliberately tries to make his wife believe things that aren't true and manipulates the environment to do that. So he's deliberately trying to make her believe things that are false. 
And you could say, you know, sometimes abusers in abusive relationships, they will make their partner believe that she usually, or sometimes he is wrong, bad, inadequate. They'll, they'll do that. Probably the best way to, to differentiate, to distinguish between gaslighting and just hearing something you don't want to hear is ask other people. Talk to people you trust and say, does this make sense to you? Am I really like that? Or is this true? I don't know what's true here. And talk to other people, get other views. Because one of the things that a person who gaslights you does is they try to isolate you so that you don't have other sources of input. And we really want to have other sources of input. And other people can say, no, you're not crazy. Or, well, actually, there's a lot of truth to what this person is saying about you. (laughs) That's great advice. I love it. I love it. You talk about empathetic accuracy. Teach us about empathetic accuracy. Yeah. So that's like knowing what the other person's feeling. And it's a really important skill. Like when we think of emotional intelligence, one of the most important components of emotional intelligence is that skill of figuring out what someone else is feeling. So, you know, if you're looking anxious, I might be able to read those signals, even if you don't tell me that you're anxious. And I might say, Will, are you feeling anxious right now? And it can be really helpful to have someone identify what you're feeling. It can feel like you're being seen, you're being affirmed. And so what we find is that knowing what someone else is feeling is a very good skill to develop. And kids, we all develop it as we grow up Mm -hmm. and through adulthood. But the other thing we found in our research was that even if you don't get the right answer, so let's say you're not feeling anxious, but I'm trying to find out what you're feeling. It matters a lot. Like it matters to someone else that I'm trying, that you're trying to know what they're feeling, right? So that even just saying, gee, I I don't know if I'm getting it, but I'm really trying to understand what you're feeling right now goes a long way to make somebody feel connected to you. Yeah, I see that so much in my life. So we're talking about this longest study on happiness. You mentioned physical health being this commonality of people that live long, healthy, happy lives. Were there any common physical health practices that you saw people that lived these long, healthy, happy lives? Anything specifically out of the data that maybe people should should know about? Not abusing alcohol. Huge. A lot of our people became alcoholics and it wreaks havoc on their physical health, it wreaks havoc on their relationships, right? And now much drugs are much more involved than they were in the initial World War II generation, right? But so not abusing drugs and alcohol is really important. Not smoking, not using tobacco, not using nicotine is really important. If you can manage to do that, I know it's hard for many people, but boy, those are huge factors in self-care and in longevity. Great. So you mentioned following people, even the the children of the original people that were being studied. I'm fascinated about the research around intergenerational trauma and how, you know, actually the experiences of our ancestors can be passed through and impact our health epigenetically and impact things like methylation expression. What are your thoughts on intergenerational trauma? Did you see any of that within your study here? 
We haven't studied it yet. So we collected a lot of data on both generations, but some of the studies that we want to do, we haven't been able to do yet because they were super complicated and, and we have like scads of data. But one of the things we did do was study whether marital satisfaction gets transmitted. Mm. So if you had a happy marriage, is it more likely that your kids are going to have a happy marriage? And what we found is that actually women whose fathers had a happy marriage were more likely themselves to have a happy marriage. Wow. More than other combinations across generations. But there's a lot more work we want to do on this because we agree with you that the these intergenerational questions are super important and really interesting. Yeah. And how that imp- is stored in our cells, right? And impacts the way that inflammation or hormones or neurotransmitters are functioning. It's really fascinating yeah. to me for sure. Yeah. And I see there's so much there's there's the studies that are typically done on this topic are really extreme historical events like the Holocaust or Ukrainian famines. And and obviously those are obvious to be researched and should be researched. But I I have a feeling that it exists on a spectrum, like you said earlier, even with personalities, is that there are these micro traumas or stressful life events that impact. I have a hunch on that. that Oh, absolutely. I see that with patients. One of the things we found was that people who had warmer relationships with their parents in childhood had warmer relationships with their spouses when they were in their 80s. Wow. And to find that connection actually statistically across 60 years of data is very rare. And so it was a very strong signal because so much happens in our lives in between. So to find a connection between the warmth of your relationships with parents and the warmth of your relationship with your spouse late in life is huge. It is huge. I mean, I get them. I go back to the people that that are listening right now and think, man, I had a really messed up childhood. I didn't learn a normal social interactions with my parents. What, it's a big thing to unpack, right? But what are some things that people can do to start to maybe break that generational cycle that maybe they find themselves in? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, to learn about it. So, you know, one of the ways we can learn about it is in therapy. Like psychotherapy can be so helpful in learning about, you know, where you've come from. I mean, and learning about how it shapes your view of the world now and your view of other people. Mm -hmm. Boy, the more you know about that, the more options you have not to just react in the same old ways based on how you grew up, but to see the world with new eyes and to see more possibilities. And then one of the things we find is that people who make relationships with different people than they grew up with. So if you had really critical parents and you make a relationship with somebody who's not particularly critical, but who's fairly accepting, that can be a very corrective experience. Mm. And that one of the things that we we see people do as they grow older, is they they get close to people who don't behave like the people they've known in their life. And it can and have a really healing effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it shows you a different way of being in a relationship. Yeah. It comes to mind too, I think, what what can happen, I think, in our culture today. And I've heard Brene Brown talk about this as well, is that, you know, it now probably more than ever, I, at least in my recent history, 
we're so tribal in many ways and we're, we, we're in this echo chamber on social media and we watch the things that it's, there's so much confirmation bias in people's lives. And I'm thinking about even like, what is, what's your experience with people that have, that are basically only having relationships with things that agree with them? I mean, do, do you feel like that would help people's happiness to have relationships that are maybe different personalities or different viewpoints in, in their life? It stretches us to hear different viewpoints. It, it keeps our minds more flexible and more open. And so in that way, it probably keeps our brains sharper. I don't have data to prove that. So, but, but you know, if you think about it, just hearing what we want to hear in our own echo chambers is not going to really make us think. It's not going to challenge us to, to consider the world in new ways. And so... The sad thing about our tribalism now and the way that media have encouraged tribalism is that it narrows our worlds and it narrows the the realm of ideas that we're exposed to. It's truly. You mentioned being a Zen master. I would love to learn a little bit about that. And that that deserves its whole other episodes. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> but let's let's at least talk about it. Like I I for people that are new to that term, I'm, I'm assuming it has to do with Zen Buddhism. Can you talk about that? I mean, that's part of the art of being well is learning about these different yeah. practices that improve quality of life and happiness and health. So what is a, being a Zen master all about? It's, it's being a Zen teacher. So I'm just a fully authorized Zen teacher after years of Zen practice and training. And so, and, and Zen is, as you know, a form of Buddhism. It's one of many different flavors of Buddhism, just like Protestantism has all these different kinds and, and Islam has different strands. And Zen Buddhism is a practice that's mostly meditation. We just sit and meditate and watch the mind and the body over and over and over again. And then the teaching comes with talks. I give Dharma talks every week at my Zen group on Monday nights. And we're all online now. And who would have thought you could practice Zen online? But during the pandemic, we Got started creative. <laughs> and it works well. And there are meetings with Zen teachers where you can talk about your meditation practice because it's really helpful to have some guidance. Mm -hmm. People get, you know, it's easy to get lost and discouraged. Mm -hmm. But but Zen is a is a practice of really just getting to know your life and yourself mm -hmm. a lot. And that's that's mainly what I what we all do in our Zen practices. You don't have to do Zen in order to have these experiences. There are other ways, but it's it's a really helpful practice. It has been for me. Mm -hmm. And I love teaching Zen too now. I love it. So it's just the way that I would describe it as the little that I know about it is I would say a more sane relationship with the present moment and yourself. Is that a good way of putting it? Yes, yes, because it because it makes it makes you look at what's coming up in the present moment and think, oh no, I can't believe, you know, I'm telling myself this story about how upset mm -hmm. I am, and when in fact the birds are singing and the sun is shining, and you mm -hmm. know, it's it's really helpful because it contrasts what all the stuff our minds make up that that's not worth anything that we worry about. Yeah. We contrast that with just the experience of being here, being alive. It's very helpful. Absolutely. So we are not our thoughts and emotions, right? But this observing 
presence of them and we don't get swept up. Or another analogy that that I heard was just, you know, we, if you're looking at the ripples of, of on a, a surface of a body of water, right, the ocean or, or a pond, we so many people mistake themselves for that ripple. And sometimes it's waves, sometimes it's still, but we are the depth of the sea beneath that, that is unchanged by our circumstances. Absolutely. Absolutely. What gravitated you towards Zen and not another school within Buddhism? Chance. I just stumbled into a Zen group at the local Unitarian church, five minute walk from my house. And I found a teacher who I loved. I just thought he was a great guy and I could really learn from him. And I started going to his Zen group and sitting every Monday night with that group. I now lead that group. He has since moved away, but he still teaches Zen. And what I found was that what people said to me was that the way to find a stable practice for myself was to find a group to sit with regularly and to find a teacher who I felt I could really learn from. And when those two things came together for me, that's when I was able to meditate every day on my own. Uh, whereas before I would always start and stop. And so it was really finding a teacher and a, and a community. That's amazing. So you mentioned Zen being so much about the here and the now and a relationship with the present moment and improving your quality of life. But I know that certain aspects of Buddhism talks about past life and reincarnation. And now the science is really catching up with antiquity that you see all this evidence coming out of the scientific journals about past lives and not really fully knowing what's going on, but exploring these, it's really hard to ignore the amount of cases. Have Do you, at a professional level, have an opinion about these things coming from both a scientific side, but also a Zen Buddhist side as well? Yeah. Well, Zen doesn't really talk about past lives or reincarnation. Zen is very much about the here and now, about just this. And the idea is if it, you know, Zen would be agnostic. Zen would say, we don't know. We don't have any way of knowing, right? Just like Zen doesn't say there's no God. Like Zen would say, well, we don't know what's in your experience. And my point of view, I don't, I don't believe in reincarnation because there's nothing in my experience that points me in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I can't say it's not the truth. I, I just don't know. Got it. Uh, that's a perfect way of putting it. So Zen would be considered more of an agnostic approach towards these things versus maybe more of the theologically driven Buddhist out there. Or is that how you would put it? Yeah. Yeah. That there isn't, Zen doesn't ask you to take anything on faith. Mm -hmm. Zen says, if this is, if this is in your experience, believe it, you know, and even then don't believe everything you think, mm -hmm. just believe like, the truth of this chair, the truth of, mm -hmm. you know, my hair, the truth of this conversation with you, yeah. because I'm experiencing it, but not, to, but I don't believe in, you know, in some of the rules and regulations that many religions ask us to believe in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. And it's, 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 you're talking about experience, like what is your own experience and having an open mind towards something and really instead of coming in with a sense of dogma around it, like what is the experience that you have? So I find that so many people, they just spout off the ideas, whether it's religious or political or whatever, health advice, right? Without really right. experiencing for themselves and, and seeing what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Right. 
There's there's a great quote that I like from a Zen teacher, Shunryu Suzuki. He he talked a lot about beginner's mind, meaning the mind that's really open, you know, like where you don't claim to know what's going on. And he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are a few. I love that. I love that. I love it. I heard it, and this is kind of the... This, along the same lines, what we're talking about, it was a, I was at some event speaking, and the I heard someone say, "May our ethics be carved in stone, but our opinions be carved in sand." Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. So many people have the other way around. <laughs> their ethics yeah. are in sand, and their opinions are in stone, which is yeah. well back to the tribalism that we talked about. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the podcast, as you know, it's called The Art of Being Well. So this, at the end of every episode, we talk about your art of being well. I want to just pick your brain on different things within wellness that that I want to, I'm curious to know your favorites. So the first question is, what is the worst tasting healthy food that you, it tastes horrible, but you still have it because it's so good for you and you, you know, maybe the nutrient density or the health benefits, anything come to mind? Probably raw kale. Because to me, it, it seems like yard waste, but <laughs> I know it's super healthy. I, I actually like cooked kale and I like marinated kale, but raw kale, I don't like so much. Yeah, it is. It's, we're getting some roughage there. Yeah. I, I find that cooking it actually, most of our patients do better with it anyways, because it kind of breaks down some of the oxalates and it makes it a little bit more digestible. Not that, I mean, some people can have raw kale and be fine, but I tend to have yeah. a little bit more sensitive patients with digestive issues or autoimmune issues. So I don't think there's any shame with cooking your kale, Bob. I think it's fine. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You have my stamp of approval. What what is your ideal dream vacation? Mm, The ideal dream vacation is being, okay, I'll tell you, it was being hosted in Bhutan by some wonderful Bhutanese people who took me on a four-hour hike up to the tiger's nest, this set of beautiful monasteries clinging to the edge of a mountain in Bhutan. Wow. Sounds amazing. Yeah. What What did you learn there? Anything on a deep metaphysical level, meditative level that you, from your trip there? Yeah. I learned that, that a society that's really organized around collective well-being is a place I would love to live. <laughs> hey, talk about uh, happiness and longevity there, right? Really, really. I mean, these are these are people who think, they don't think about me and am I being self-fulfilled? They think about everybody and how can I help and what's needed? And it's just a, it's a wonderful way for people to live with each other. Yeah, and so much of that, right, has to do with having a collective hearts and minds that are in unison, right? Not force, which I think that's where I think a lot of authoritarian governments get it wrong because they're not changing the hearts and minds. They're just kind of regulating and controlling people. But someone like that, that have a spiritual unity, they are bought into the idea, right? They are, and it's for the benef- benefit of the collective. Can I tell you a little story about Bhutan? Yes, of course. So in during the pandemic, they wanted to vaccinate everybody and it's, you know, a few hundred thousand people. So it was a big project mm-hmm. and they wanted to get everybody vaccinated within a week. 
And the king and queen of Bhutan are much loved. People just adore them. And so the king and queen said, we will be the last people to be vaccinated during this campaign. And so the Bhutanese just raced to line up to get vaccinated because it was all about collective well-being. And they, they you know, and the I king and queen said, you guys all have to go first and then we'll and then we'll get ours. I love that. That leadership. I love that. And and, and they're trusted too. I think that's another Very thing. Trusted. People don't trust their leaders here as much. I know. I yeah, know. Sad. All right. Next question. If you had to eat one food for the rest of your life, regardless of health benefits, what would that food be for you? Chocolate ice cream. It <laughs> didn't flinch. Chocolate. No. <laughs> what, what, what type of chocolate ice cream are we talking about, Bob? Well, actually, the best would be gelato. A really dark chocolate gelato All would right. be... Yes. I love it. I love it. I was at this Italian place yesterday. I ha If I had to pick a gelato, I would pick the lemon, the le lemon sorbetto, I guess. Or yeah, sorbet, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the, I, something about lemon. Lemon mm. and sugar, tart with the sweet... So you you and my wife. My wife <laughs> loves lemon. It's so good. What are two, I guess if you take supplements, what are two supplements that you are consistent with that you notice a benefit from? Oof. I only take one supplement and it's a, it's a just a multivitamin. And the reason I take it is that they did a couple studies showing that people maintain their cognitive health longer when they take just a regular multivitamin. Love it. So that's what I do. And that's the only supplement I take. Any specific multi, do you, do you switch brands? I think there's one called Centrum Okay. that I take. And I take it because it was used in the study that I read. I love it. Hey. I'm yeah. like real simple. Yeah, I love it. Simple, scientific. I love it. Do yeah. you think we're better or worse off with social media? Oof. I think it's both. <laughs> I think it's definitely worse off because of these echo chambers and the tribalism mm -hmm. that's so much more toxic and that people don't have to face each other and, and take responsibility for what they might say, right? But there's also connectivity that there never was before. I mean, so I know people who during the pandemic reached out to, like they're in their 60s and they reached out to elementary school friends and they formed these little groups that now meet every week online and they're so happy getting connected again. So I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's better and worse. Yeah. It's how you use it. Right. We almost need to like teach people etiquette, right? <laughs> because I don't think anybody, yeah. everyone just learned on their own, but there's these really dark corners of the web. Well, right. And the, the other problem is that the designers, they know that the more they capture and hold our attention, the more ads they sell, the more money they make. And they know that anger and fear sell. So if you can sell people anger and fear, you'll hold their attention longer and make more money. And that is a problem. So the path of least resistance is to go down these rabbit holes that make us more afraid and more angry. And what we need, so we need to avoid the path of least resistance and be, really be more intentional mm -hmm. about how we use the media. Right. I know because it's so much a part of people's lives, right? They, I call keyboard warriors, right? They, they, they would never say this to somebody's face, but it is the path of least resistance. They're just so 
used to just spilling out their thoughts right at the end of the keyboard or their phone without thinking about the other person that they're saying it to. Absolutely. If you were able to live to the age of 100 and keep either the mind or the body of a 30-year-old for the last 70 years of your life, what would you want? (laughs) That's not fair. This is a Zen Um, exercise right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess I'd keep my mind. I mean, that, that my, you know, I, my Zen practice is all about awareness and the miracle of awareness. And so even being aware of a decrepit body is better than no awareness for me. Yeah. Wow. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. You mentioned, it's a good segue here. This, I, I wanted to ask you what was, was a spiritual or a mindfulness practice that has been really helpful. So within the school of Zen Buddhism, is there maybe a beginner's exercise or meditation or practice that you could teach us today? Oh, yeah. So I would say you don't have to meditate. Just go and sit down and look at something beautiful. Spend five minutes, which is a very long time, sitting absolutely still, just looking at this thing that may be something you've seen thousands of times before, and ask yourself, what's here that I've never noticed before? Just look at every detail of this thing that you've decided to spend five minutes sitting in stillness and looking at, and just notice how you feel afterwards. I love that. So it's some deep present moment awareness. Love that. Five minutes, right on the surface, it seems like, oh yeah, I could do five minutes. But when you have all of your attention on one thing, It shows you how much the monkey mind is spinning, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes I'll look at the tree in my front yard and I can see so much stuff if I get myself to really look, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I love that. It's just a tree. (laughs) There's so much to it, right? What's your favorite restaurant in the world? And when you're there, what do you order? Oh, boy. Well, hmm. I'll just tell you what's coming to mind. It's probably not my favorite restaurant, but it's it's pretty good. So there's a place called Legal Seafoods in Boston, and they have a dish called Everything Tuna. And it's a it's a lightly seared filet of tuna. It's pretty thick. And they coat it in everything, like sp- the spices, you the stuff you'd have on an everything bagel, except they coat the tuna with it. And it's just delicious. It's sushi-grade tuna. And it's got this wonderful coating of sesame seeds and poppy seeds and garlic and, you know, lots of wonderful seasonings. And, and that's what I order. I love it. Sounds great. Do you know what Myers-Briggs or Enneagram you are? I don't. I think somebody once told me with the Enneagram that I'm like a two, but I'm not sure. Okay. I think two is a piece peacemaker maybe i'm not an expert on enneagram that's probably right yeah i used to be more of a peacemaker even it's really hard for me to not try to rush in and make peace yeah you know too i i to be a peacemaker but it's also a helper but they are like i think the twos that i know are very peaceful and helpful as far as that which you know all the enneagrams like even with myers-briggs they have their strengths and and their it can go too far one way or the other What are your thoughts on that? Those type of personality research studies. What are your thoughts on them? You know, I don't know. I mean, I know lots of people who I respect who 
love the Enneagram and really use it to me because I know it's, I've just had a brief exposure to it and it's quite complicated. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm in that place of not knowing. Mm -hmm. Got it. You mentioned Zen is so much about the here and now. We talked about past lives. I'm I'm ex- curious about your experience, not some theoretical theological point, but your experience through your meditation. Do you have any insight or thoughts about the afterlife? Do you think there is life after death? Do you have an opinion on that? Mm. My experience in meditation includes experiences of being part of a much bigger whole. Like right now, in those moments when the self, the boundaries of my small self, of Bob, kind of soften. And it's really just about being in the flow of, you know, of everything happening right now in this moment. Mm -hmm. And the way I think about death is that, that it's just, it's like the wave returning to the ocean, Mm. right? And that that's more how I think of it than, than anything else. Got it. Because you mentioned about a meet, uh, teaching about Dharma, right? I'm curious, like, do you believe in karma in some way? I mean, how's that maybe for people that are newer to that term of Dharma? What What is that exactly? Well, Dharma is just, it's used two ways. One is it's just the whole body of Buddhist teachings. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the original meaning of the word Dharma is the way things are. And if you think about it, that's what Buddhist teachings purport to be. They yeah. purport to be teachings about just the way life is. Right. That's different from karma, which is causes and conditions. And so if you if you think about it, all karma is, is the idea that what came before shapes what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean past lives necessarily. It doesn't mean we built up bad karma three lifetimes ago and we're paying for it now. It could, I don't know, but it means that, you know, what I did this morning is shaping how I feel and how I am right now, Mm -hmm. right? It's a causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, what I love about the idea of karma is think about all the causes and conditions that had to come together for you and me to be sitting here talking to each other. Like, what is the likelihood that either of us would be born, first of all, that we'd be raised in the way we were, that we would have taken the life paths we have that make us end up here having this conversation? It's kind of astonishing when you think about it that way. Yeah. My goodness. I I posted recently, and I posted actually every few months because it's a meditation in and of itself where it it goes back in time and shows us how many thousands and thousands of grandparents we've had to have just for you to exist. It is trippy to think about the existential sort of gravitas of that. Exactly. Exactly. And think of, of all the sperm that didn't become you or me, right? You know, <laughs> right. That, that didn't become anybody. It's true. I mean, that here, I pulled it up right here. It says, I, I wrote history as a meditation to be here right now. You needed four grandparents, eight great grandparents. And it goes back to 2048 ninth great grandparents, over 2000 ninth great grandparents, just for you to okay. live your life that we take for granted so often. That's karma. That's causes and conditions. Yeah. It's beautiful. What's a book that you've read in the last year? It could be fiction or nonfiction that's got you thinking in a fresh, innovative new way. Oh, ooh. 
There's a book by David Loy, L-O-Y. He's a Zen teacher that I really like. And it's, it's something like sex, war, money, and karma, something like that. It's like a really sensational title. But his, he has some really interesting ideas about why we all get attached to things like war and wealth. And, you know, he, it's, it really has made me think differently about the self, the nature of the self and our ideas about the self and all the hoops we try to jump through to make ourselves feel real and important and lasting. So I think it's worth, it's worth taking a look at that book. I love it. We'll put it in the show notes, all the things we've talked about. Last question is, what do you want people to get out of the book? When they read it, what do you want them to leave with? I want them to leave with the sense of, oh my gosh, I have to pay more attention to my relationships. I have to reach out to this person I haven't seen in a long while. I have to tell this person how much I value them. It's that kind of thing that I want them to do when they finish reading the book. And I hope that the book really inspires them because we have all these life stories that kind of help you see how whole lives play out with these practices. I love it. I, I love the book. I'm such a fan of your work. Where can people get it? Where can people get the book? Where can people learn more about your work? You can order it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can go to our website. So our website is thegoodlifebook.com. There are hyphens between each word, but it's basically thegoodlifebook.com. And you can order it any number of places there. My friend, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. This was a really great conversation. Thanks. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Liam. Liam asks, hi, Dr. Cole, do you actively still see patients? Thanks for the question, Liam. The answer is absolutely. That's my day job. My day job has not changed in 12 plus years, 13 years at this point. I freaking love what I do. It keeps me sharp. It's my passion, my heart to really hold space for people that are struggling with chronic health problems, to be ruthlessly vigilant in figuring out why they feel the way that they do and give them the due diligence and the thoughtfulness and time that these cases require. So yes, the telehealth center, we were one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world. My 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., basically I'm a man of routine and where I record the podcast 99% of the time, I am in this room where I'm at right now and this is where I'm consulting patients, this is where I do the podcast, is really no mystique behind it. This is basically all that I do. So interspersed in between consulting patients is when we record these episodes of The Art of Being Well. So absolutely, you can head on over to drwillcole.com and go to the consultation becoming a patient page. And they're all the telehealth options for people and the different ways that I can be there for people are all on that page. There are options to have the initial consultation 
with one of my functional diagnostic nutrition practitioners who you actually know most of them from the show. I mean, people like Andrea or Emily or Megan and there are other brilliant people on my team that hold the telehealth consultations or there are options at this point, at least, to hold the initial consultation with me. So all the different intricacies are on that page. So check it out. We also have two different modes of how we help people around the world. There's the concierge side of things, which is the one-on-one option that that we have for patients. And that's what we've done for the past decade plus is, is the concierge telehealth model. But then about three or so years at this point in 2020, we launched our group telehealth model as well to make functional medicine even more accessible and affordable to more people. So there's really something for everybody there. And we want to really give people choice when it comes to functional medicine. And we take that extremely seriously. So you can learn it about it, all, all the different options at drgocole.com. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.